So excited that you're here. Welcome to Center Church. If we've not had the chance to meet before, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor. And a happy Valentine's Day. Again, if you missed that, the last half hour, there's your friendly reminder. If you forgot that it is Valentine's Day, this is the day where you're supposed to go get cards and flowers. And Target yesterday was a madhouse because people were just lined up and it was a bunch of frantic men. They were just like, oh crap, this tomorrow. Grabbing things off the shelves and Reese's out of the aisles and flowers wherever they were left. It was pretty funny. Uh, But it's interesting because Valentine's Day for me always brings about like the lovey-dovey romantic feeling. I've been married for over seven years, and so we've kind of got a rhythm down for how we do it. But it's really interesting when some of those kind of romantic gestures go wrong, go awry. Maybe you've been a part of some of those. I remember a few weeks ago, David, who serves on our teaching team, came and, and kind of walked us through as part of his teaching of his amazing proposal and how amazing he is and how smart he is and how perfect it all went. And uh, mine was pretty perfect. Uh, there were some glitches in the, in the moment, but I remember our proposal going fairly well. Um, but I get kind of a sick pleasure out of when those things don't go well. <laughs> I, I don't know. It may just be me. And so I've kind of scoured the internet for the last couple of weeks trying to find some examples of this. And a very famous one is you've probably, maybe you've been at a sporting event or some kind of large gathering when those were a thing. And uh, someone proposed to somebody and it was just like the whole place erupts. It's incredible. Uh, what I like to find is where they propose and it doesn't go as well. Now, when you search on YouTube, pretty much all of them are actors or influencers or YouTubers. You know it's like put on, it's fake. Um, But I did some digging, and uh, lo and behold, at a college basketball game, I found what I was looking for. So check it out. terrible person, but I think that's so funny. I mean, there's like 10 layers of humor to that. Uh, number one, the like the awkward brother and sister moment right before them. You're like, I'm not going to kiss you. And they're like a little peck on the head. I wonder if that guy's married though. Do you, do you ever wonder about stuff like that? I wonder if he ever made it. Like if he actually achieved 
what he was looking for clearly was not in that woman because she was out of there. Poor UCLA fan base. But anyway, I, I just think that's really interesting on a ton of human levels. Like I'm a pastor. I work with people 24-7, so I think about weird stuff like this. What's funny to me is when you watch that, maybe it's mean to say that, but what's funny to me when you watch that is that uh, this guy gets down on one knee and newsflash, you don't propose to someone unless you're like 99% sure it's going to work, right? Like when I proposed to Lindsay, there was like maybe a percentage of risk, but 99% was like, oh, she's going to say yes for sure. And as soon as she sees this mini ring that I bought her, it's going to be a <laughs> definite yes. Like, uh, I didn't order a headlight or anything. It was like pretty small. So, um, but I think about like for that guy to get down on one knee, he was really sure about their relationship. I mean, he's like, we're in a stable place. We're rock solid. The next step is clearly marriage. And so he gets down on one knee and this lady is like all, I mean, that, like the pull away from the microphone, the, the getting, getting up and just leaving the whole moment, fleeing the scene. And you know, it's kind of real because the, uh, the announce, like the lady hosting is just like, uh, not sure what to do. Like that, that again, maybe a sick thing that I like, but the kiss cam reveals all. All right, like kiss cam just reveal all in that moment. Uh, but you probably think about your own life, and it may not necessarily be in a relationship, maybe it is, but you know what it's like to be let down by something. Right? You've had, I mean, all of us, you could look back over the last 12 months or so and say, yeah, there were some things that I was let down by. For some of you, it was. A relationship. It was a marriage that's not where you want it to be. It was a relationship that you were hoping would be a little bit farther or a little bit uh, more stable than it is right now. There For you, maybe it's a friendship that was really strong, really tight, really close, and you've just watched it kind of break down and disintegrate over the last year. We all know what it's like to be let down by something. And some of you, relationships are good, and you could look at three other, four other areas in your life that's saying, yeah, that's actually where I'm let down. For some of you, that was a career. It was a change that you made thinking it was going to be better, and it's actually worse. It was a, a, uh, a firing that you just didn't expect. You didn't see it. You didn't see it coming. You're totally caught off guard, and you're still reeling. It may be a job that you thought you'd really like, and you ended up in it, and it just has not been and, and kind of fulfilled the needs that you had. You've been let down by people, by bosses, by the pastor of Center Church maybe. I don't know. Like It's inevitable to happen. People... Let us down. Here's the truth I want to just hold on to. And I want us to dig into this today. As you look at your life, and as I look at my life, and as you open and just work through the scriptures, there's a Valentine's Day truth in there that God's love creates stability. It's God's love that creates stability. Because here's what happens every single marriage has a rough patch, every single job has a day where you don't want to go anymore. Every single financial decision isn't always a fun one. Every single parenting move you have to make or action that you have to decisively say, all right, we're getting on the same page and we've got to do this. They are not always romantic and at times they will let you down. You will fail yourself sometimes. But God's love creates stability. And I'm willing to bet, even though I don't know all of your stories and all of you personally, that we all know what instability feels like. We know the stress of it. We know the worry of it. We know the uncertainty baked within there. And very few of us actually live life every single day with a grounded sense of stability because ultimately it comes from God's love. I see, I'm like you in so many ways. We may look different. We may eat different foods. We may do things for fun that are different. But here's what I know. 
I know what it's like to try to find stability in things that are by nature unstable. I mean, I sat uh, last week in a counselor's office just trying to process some things that are happening in my life and looking back over the years. And uh, one of the things I found out about myself that this journey is kind of illuminated about myself is just the incredible need I have sometimes for other people's approval, for sermons to go well, to be liked. I mean, I'm with 20 people all the time. And there's like the creeping sense from when I was a little kid to want to impress my parents or my boss or my teachers or my professors or my leaders or my pastors or my uh, friends or whatever. There's a creeping need in my life. I have to be aware of that to get the approval of people to be perceived as successful, to be perceived as important or significant, to be perceived as adding value to other people. And that by nature is unstable. Because you all, myself included, we are all moving targets when it comes to other people's approval. I mean, it could change in an instant. And you've had that at work probably. You've had that in a relationship. Okay, this is what I think this person wants. I'm going to give it to them, and then they just push it back in my face. That's not what they wanted. There's unmet expectations. There's stress. There is anxiety that's kind of within that. And when we try to find stability in things that are by nature unstable, people's approval, success, a career, money, relationships, sexuality, whatever, those are moving targets, and you and I will live our whole lives disappointed. Some of you showed up today, Valentine's Day, disappointed, because there are things in your life that are causing you to ask the question, where's the stability I need? And ultimately, I just want to give you the truth up front, it's God's love that creates stability. It's a foundation on his love. And so I want to take you uh, our next stop on the journey in Revelation is actually the city of Philadelphia, which teaching calendars just aligned perfectly on that one. It just was like, boom, Valentine's Sunday. We're talking about the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia got its name. We're not talking about Pennsylvania here, but Philadelphia in what is now modern-day uh, Turkey area is really a, a combination of two words. So Adelphos is brother or companion, and philo is kind of one of the Greek ideas for love. And so the city of brotherly love is kind of baked in even to their name. Like that, they were a city that was supposed to love people. They were so faithful and loyal to the Roman Empire that the emperor gave them that name. So this is your name. You're so faithful to the empire. Uh, Philadelphia is kind of the gateway to the east. You can think about Philadelphia as really the Napa Valley uh, some of you are just like, I'm, I'm awake again. What would you say? Wine? Like, I'm here. Like, I'm, I'm clued in. Like, Napa Valley of, of Asia Minor, of the whole empire. And to this day, you can go because the soil is so fertile and rich that there are still vineyards today being, being harvested for incredible wine, like Turkish wines. And so you can go there. But I want to take you to what Jesus says to this church, nestled in the heart of Philadelphia. This, it's not one of the biggest cities this isn't one of the longest letters, but there's something incredibly significant for us to learn in there. So in Revelation 3, verse 7, some of this will be on the screen. If you want to open your Bible or have a device on you, it'll really be helpful to you. Here's what he says. This is what Jesus writes through the Apostle John. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him, talking about Jesus himself, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet, acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command and to endure my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. There's a lot there. <laughs> There's a lot of imagery and metaphors Jesus is, is kind of throwing around to this young church in Philadelphia. One of the most obvious ones is this whole idea of the key of David. It's one of the very first things Jesus says to this church. And it's actually a reference back to the Old Testament. Some of you are familiar with the scriptures enough to know King David, really the foremost king of Israel, the most important figure in Israel's history was King David. So you look at his story, you look at his legacy, he was an incredible king. I mean, even as you read, I'm reading through the Gospel of Matthew right now, as you read the genealogy, one of the most important, significant names in that genealogy of Jesus Christ was David, was the fact that he came from this kingly line. Well, the key of David is really an example. It's a symbol of authority and power because uh, keys were not smalls and like you could hold, like you can probably fit your keys in the palm of your hand, I'm assuming. If you have like a ton of work keys, maybe it's a big palm of your hand, but like you can, you can carry them quite easily. Well, in the Old Testament, in ancient days, the bigger the key, the bigger the ruler. And so literally people like King David had keys that would be the size of me, which is huge, right? Like super tall, very fit. I know that's what you're thinking. But they're big keys. <laughs> that's my point. They were huge. I mean, in fact, people like David would have kind of the symbol of authority carried around with them as they walked through a city or through a courtyard or a marketplace. So big, they'd have to sling the key over their body. Like huge. It was just a massive symbol that you're the ruler, you're in charge, you're the king, You've got the authority. And Jesus is saying just at the very beginning, almost like he does every single letter, hey, just a reminder who's king here. Just a reminder who's the real emperor. Just a reminder who is truly sovereign, who's truly carrying the authority, who has the power of life and death. It's not Domitian or Nero or Caesar, it's me. And so he's reminding them of his actual authority if you're in Philadelphia reading this, it would kind of be a welcomed metaphor because you're under the thumb of an incredibly oppressive Roman government. I mean, just picture this. This literally happened. You can trace back Philadelphia's history. The emperor Domitian decided, hey, we need to produce more grain. We've got more agricultural exploits we want to take care of. We want to keep pushing the Roman war machine. So we need more grain to feed troops and do all this other stuff. And so instead of protecting their local economy, which obviously for a small city is vital. And the vineyards were everywhere in Philadelphia. Domitian decrees, hey, I want all of you Roman soldiers go, and I want you to get your shovels, get your axes, and rip out all the vineyards. Just destroy them all. Burn them down. And I want you to plant grain, because we're going to do grain in Philadelphia now. And if you could picture that, now that's obviously detached. None of us, I don't think, are owners of massive vineyards in California, but you've maybe been there or are familiar with it. If you dismantle that agriculture, you're not just dismantling one person's livelihood. It's an entire system. It's an entire economy you're, you're removing from a place. And so think about the financial instability that you would experience as a, as a landowner in Philadelphia. Just picture the president issuing an executive order. We're all very familiar with executive orders these days. Whether the, I feel like I could do one right now, and you may actually listen. I don't know. I'm not going to try it. I just thought about it. Uh, 
but one of the interesting things, this would very be in some way similar to the president saying, there's an executive order. You have to stop selling insurance forever. You're done. Find a new industry. This would be similar to uh, the president saying, hey, executive order's out. You have to stop designing homes forever. And, and people need to design their own kitchens now. Lord help them. <laughs> like, that's where you're at. Like, you just have to, you, you're basically eliminating entire industries and all the things that are built around those industries gone. And so if anyone knew what it was like to face instability, it's the people of Philadelphia. They knew personally what it was like, uh, not only in their financial world, but then you could take their physical world. Literally in Philadelphia, the region of Turkey this is in is incredibly prone to earthquakes. And so multiple times in Philadelphia's history, this small city had been entirely devastated by earthquakes. So much so that a group of Philadelphians had basically said, we're done with this city. We're moving on. They went to Cabela's, bought tents, and moved out. Literally, there was tent cities camped around Philadelphia. Like, we'll go to work there. We are not sleeping there. No way. Like, we're sleeping out in the countryside, and we're going to make it happen. Um, and when I read things like that, as you look at Philadelphia, having to rebuild physically an entire infrastructure would be incredibly exhausting. Sometimes when I read Revelation, though, I just think of weird things that maybe happened in there. I'm thinking about, like, as I was reading this earlier, like a musician named Doug, like he's sleeping at night. He's got his harp next to him and the wall starts to crumble and he's like, dang, I wish I was in the construction industry, like just creeping in on him. I mean, you can think about situations like that in which it's like, yeah, this is not going to go well. Like you'd be fearful for your kids and children, instability everywhere financially, your physical world is literally shaking beneath you. And I think as you look at the scriptures, as you look at a metaphor like that, as you look at a city like that, again, you and I know what that feels like. Maybe you haven't had your home crumble. Maybe you haven't had your industry just get wiped out overnight. But you know what it is like to be in an unstable environment, to have your relationships be strained, to have your finances not be where you want them to be, to have your, your faith, your spirituality, your journey not be as far along as you were hoping it would be. That's why I find such encouragement in the rest of this letter. Because as you scan to verse 11 in chapter 3, here's what Jesus continues on by saying. He reminds the church of Philadelphia, friends, I am coming soon. He doesn't give them a time stamp. He just says soon. <laughs> I am coming soon. I am coming for you. Some of you, the most important thing you can hear today is just that truth. He's coming soon. You are not alone. There, there is a better end to this story. Your circumstances, your difficulties, your cancer, your financial strain, that's not all that there is. I'm coming soon. And he keeps going and says, hold on to what you have. Just hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Remember a few churches ago, we talked about this crown of life, this crown of victory. It's not like something we achieve. It's something that's given to us as sons and daughters of God. This, this victorious crown. It says, to the one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Think about a Philadelphian. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I've seen pillars. I've seen them crumble. Maybe I had my friend squashed by one. I'm not very fond of pillars. Like, I'm not excited about pillars. Because I will make you a pillar, not in a earthly sense, but in the temple of my God. I will build your foundation on something that's stable. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. 
And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you looked at Philadelphia and and other cities that we've explored, almost every single massive pillar, especially in temples, would have Roman inscriptions on them. It was essentially kind of a twofold way of saying, hey, we are backing up what we're saying. We're going to keep you stable. We're going to keep a good foundation under you. But we're also going to remind you that your hope is in us. Your foundation should be in us. Domitian, Nero, Caesar, you go down the list. Emperors who claim to be the sons of God, to be Lord of Lords, King of Kings, a title that Jesus obviously reserves for God himself. And so on these pillars, you'd walk by them as a Christian and you would have to be faced with a decision, a decision that you and I face, we just don't see it. Am I going to serve that God Am I going to build my life on that foundation? Am I going to find stability in things that are, friends, by nature unstable? Or am I going to go a different way? Am I going to choose to build my life on the kingdom of God, on the love of God, on the presence of God, on a walking, breathing, living, real relationship with Jesus Christ himself? And you and I face that same decision all of the Philadelphian Christians did. Am I going to do that? Am I going to build my life on those kind of pillars or not? But the reminder over and over again for every church in Revelation is that it's God's love that creates stability. Some of you may not even believe what I'm saying right now. Some of you be like, yeah, but I'm really successful. One day you won't be. One day you will face a decision. You will face a crisis that dismantles all the things that gave you stability And at the end of the day, this truth will remain. It's God's love that creates stability. It's God's love that gives you purpose. It's God's love that outlasts your human achievements, your people's approval. Whatever it is that you chase to find value, I shared with you mine, whatever it is for you, it's God's love alone at the end of the day that creates stability. I wrote this in my journal a year ago about this whole idea. When we find our stability in things that are by nature unstable, I, you, we live in constant disappointment. Even days like today sometimes have a way of just reminding us how empty and fragile life really is, how empty and fragile sometimes romantic relationships can be, how empty and fragile our job is. But it's God's love alone that creates stability. There's this idea in the Old Testament of hesed. It's this beautiful Hebrew word that basically in the entire length of scripture is one of the purest forms of who God's character is. And even gospel writers later talk about this, 1 John, other places, that God is love. That love is not a like sub-characteristic of who God is. It's actually at his very nature. It's a part of who he is. It's like in the DNA of God himself to be a loving person, to be a loving God towards his people. But said doesn't just mean love. It means unfailing love. It means stable love. It has this idea of a sure foundation attached to it. And the psalmist, King David, was obsessed with writing about said over and over and over again. Your love, O Lord, it endures forever. It's stable. It's unfailing. God, your love is unfailing. When my foes swore me, it's your love, O Lord, that is stable. So this is not a new idea for Philadelphian Christians. They would have known, hey, Jesus talking about said here. He's talking about this actual reality could be real for us. And all of us know what instability feels like. And very few of us yet ever experience the stability that we crave. 
See, friends, instability, it's, it's a 55-year-old guy who is nervously, feverishly prepping for that big meeting, the big presentation, not because he just wants to do a good job, but because if he doesn't do a good job, he doesn't have a job. It's an empty attempt at stability. It's the high school student who is craving more than anything for a normal life, but it's racked with anxiety, is overly stressed, overly burdened, because every single weekend he hears his parents talk about divorce for the fourth time. It's the mom who is running from soccer game to work call to lunch with friends to selling their thing on their Facebook to whatever, not because they just like activity, but because if they don't produce, if they don't look busy, if they don't try to squeeze a year's worth of activities into three months, they're a bad mom. It's an empty attempt at stability. It's an empty pursuit. It's at the end of the day, hollow and vain and incredibly disappointing. Lindsay and I are reflecting uh, just on our house. We're in the, I, should, I, say, I say this every sermon, we're in the midst of renovation because we literally are always in the midst of renovation, right? We bought an incredible ranch, 1963, and uh, there's a lot of things about it that are ranchy 1963 things. And so there's a lot of things. Some of you have been in my basement or helping with floors, and there's a lot of projects we still have left. Now, one of those, we're getting ready to redo our kitchen in a couple weeks. And so we were just thinking about, in some ways, what a blessing this house has been. It came at just like a perfect time for our family. And as we prepare for another one, that we've got plenty of room, all those kind of things. We were just really grateful. And I was thinking this weekend and throughout the week preparing for the sermon about kind of our house journey. And I've shared this with some of you. Some of you were actually a part of the journey of finding the house that we live in. But about two years ago, Lindsay and I were sitting around the, the kitchen table just trying to envision like, where do we want to live? What kind of house do we want? And uh, we were 24-7 on Zillow, just constantly looking on realtor.com. And you guys are sending us suggestions like, hey, what about this? What about that? And so we thought we kind of found the one. So Lindsay works about 25 minutes away from here. And I obviously work here in Byron. And so we're trying to figure out where's kind of a good middle ground. So we thought we found one. Now from the outside, it was not anything to write home about. It was 1950s, very basic, but they had flipped it. And so you go inside, it's like, boom, like HGTV remodel show, like clearly had just moved in and done everything. It was like brand new carpet, awesome lighting. Everything was incredibly modern, granite countertops, all the light fixtures you would ever want. I mean, it was incredible. It was a beautiful home they had redone or wood fireplace, all these things. It just, it just kept checking every single box for us. And so we do a quick look through. I didn't really notice too many things. I mean, there was some weird stuff, like in the basement, there was a weird thing with like a fire alarm thing. We're just like, okay, we'll maybe figure it out. Because you knew that you get an inspection next. That's like the next step in the process. We get inspections because we have no idea what we're doing, okay? That's why we do it. Some of you may be like, inspection, what's that? Anyway, so we go through the inspection. We pull up and the inspector had been there clearly a few minutes before us and had kind of scanned around. And so he walks out, super nice guy. Like you, you could tell it almost hurt him to say it. He was like, hey, have you guys like looked in the basement? And I was like, yeah, it looked awesome. I mean, it's old, but I didn't notice anything wrong. He's like, yeah, how about we go downstairs? How <laughs> about I take you for a little spin? So we go downstairs and he immediately looks to this left wall, which has these 
kind of bracket plate things. I'm giving away my ignorance here. They're things that were meant to support the wall, okay? That's basically what I know. They were there. And so I, I looked over and I was like, wait, you're talking about this? And he's like, yeah, let me show you something. We walk kind of around this dark corner. There's literally earth coming through the foundation into the home, like into the basement. Some of you know what's happening, right? This is a diagram for those of you who are like me who have no idea what's happening. It's really the earth is pushing against kind of an unstable foundation. Eventually, it's going to, at some point, would actually break through. And that was starting to happen. They had earth coming out of their walls, which is, again, not what you're supposed to have, in case you're wondering. And so we go down there. He kind of walks us through the problem. And he's like, hey, you definitely can buy this house. But just know, you're going to have some future issues with the foundation, and so Lindsay and I loved the house. Though. I mean, we were torn. We were literally torn so much so that I was like, let's, let's move forward. I mean, we can, we can make it happen. Uh, we'll figure it out down the road. Let's just start saving for when that day comes, when it inevitably comes. And uh, we got the offer accepted. We were so excited. And Lindsay was like, I just don't feel right. So there's way more Jesus in her than me. Newsflash. <laughs> she had like divine oracle from God, just like revelation basically. And so she was like, I just don't think it's right. And I trust my wife implicitly more than any of you. I trust her. And so I just was like, all right, offer's accepted. I really like the house. She doesn't. That's God. I'm just going to go with, go with her gut. And so we didn't end up buying the house. Now, all of you sitting here who own a home are like, yeah, you're right. You should have listened to Lindsay, and she's much wiser. Because the foundation was broken. It was cracked. Now, ironically, as I look back, that house was on Philadelphia Avenue, <laughs> which I did not even put together because I'm so dense. But I put it together as I was working on this sermon like, oh my gosh, God, you were trying to communicate a lesson to me here. But so many of us, we live our lives just like that house on Philadelphia Avenue. Everything looks great on the outside, but inside our foundation is cracked, it's hollow, and sometimes we're not even aware. We are totally oblivious to the fact that we are trying to find stability in things that are by nature unstable. God has a better way. God's love alone creates stability. A relationship with, with Jesus himself allows you to move on past that bowed foundation life into something much more stable. And so I want to share with you a question, then I want to share with you a prayer, and then we're going to be done. I want to share with you a question that was posed to me actually last week. And I've been thinking about it. I was trying to wrestle with God what do you want to do with this message? What do you want to say to us? What do you want us to wrestle with? And this question just popped up. I don't even remember where I read it. I said, I think that's it. It's this question by Parker Palmer, who's a theologian and author, writes on spiritual things like what we're talking about. Essentially, Parker Palmer says that when you look at your life, when you look at your reactions to things, when you look at your circumstances to your decision-making, one of the things he says is, what is your life trying to say to you? Let me say that one more time. What is your life today, your real self, what is your life trying to communicate to you? If you took 30 seconds and just got out of the grind, you got out of the habits, you got out of the normal routines, you got out of the planning and just said, I'm going to take a, an inventory of my own life. Friends, what is your life trying to say to you right now? Because if we wrestle with that question, there's going to be things that start to bubble up. The Holy Spirit is good and kind and, and wise will help you figure those things out. But what is your life trying to say to you? Are there places where you're overreacting? That's one for me. I look at my reactions when something was like, should be like a two reaction, but I overreact, overreact like it was a 10. 
Like I just blow up or I freak out or I get really, really worried about something that isn't that big of a deal. Whenever Lindsay and I build furniture, this happens. <laughs> I just like, I hate building furniture. And so I was even trying to look this last couple weeks, God, what, what is my life trying to say to me? For, for you, it may be other markers, other indicators, and hopefully you're self-aware enough to know some of those by now. But what is your life trying to say to you? And then the second response, I think, that comes from that is praying a very simple prayer that I've started praying the last couple months. Is God, I am letting you into blank. Because so much of our lives sometimes is just closed off from God's work. There, there are whole relationships you and I have that we just don't include God at all. There are work decisions where we don't think about what would God do in this moment? What would Jesus himself do in this moment? How would Jesus handle this difficult person? And we just keep our lives closed off. We show up to church, we do everything else, but our lives are very, very closed off to what God actually wants to do in like the details of your life. And this prayer helps us get moving in that direction. Just saying, God, I'm letting you into blank. Again, for you, it may be a relationship. There may be a big decision there may be maybe a parenting tension you're, you're holding right now. And maybe even your spouse and you, they, you don't agree on the decision. Maybe there's a decision to move or, or to change jobs or to heal a relationship to forgive someone. And that unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment is tearing you apart inside. God, I'm letting you into blank. And so we're going to take just 30 seconds and, and ask God's spirit, would you identify this? And I'm just going to pray that simple prayer. God, I'm letting you into blank and watch him work. Would you pray with me? So God, today in just this moment that we're in, we let you in. And I pray that as you give us some space right now to just process, where am I living? Where am I, what am I pursuing what stability am I trying to find that at the end of the day is absolutely empty? And would you replace that pursuit, God, with a pursuit of your love, the pursuit of your presence, the pursuit of a real relationship with the real Jesus? So God, we take these few seconds and we just invite you in. God, I'm letting you in. God, we just come before you today with our, our lives, who we are. And for some of us, the response to that prayer, the, the blank that we're filling in is actually, maybe it needs to be our, our lives, our, ourselves, that we've never made the decision to make you Lord and Savior. We, Savior. We've never laid down our rights, laid down our selfishness and made you king. So, God, I pray for that person, whether they're in this room or they're watching online, who just knows, yeah, I need to begin a relationship with Jesus today. Pray that you give them the courage and the boldness to step out, to tell somebody, to, to make that surrender real. And for those 
of us who find ourselves following you, but maybe have some areas that we've been pursuing stability and things that are by nature unstable that will fail us and disappoint us. God, would you help us to remove distractions, to remove barriers so that we can truly know and serve and follow you? God, I'm letting you into my life today. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your kindness to us in the cross. And we pray that as we let you in, God, that you keep stirring, you keep convicting us. You'd help us to not look around and and point out other people's issues, but you instead would turn the mirror on ourselves and say, God, how do you want me to change? How do you want me to be transformed into your image? How do you want me to love my spouse, to love my friend, to love my roommate, to serve those in my life with the love that you've given me? Thank you for the challenge of your word today. I pray that you'd encourage us and convict us at the same time. In Jesus' name, amen.